Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. This is the Entree Architect Podcast, episode 93. Welcome back to the Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark Arlapage, and this is the podcast dedicated to a successful life as a small firm architect. Whether you have plans to someday start your own firm, whether you're in the process of launching a startup, or you might be an experienced small firm architect just trying to make a difference, this podcast is for you. My goal is to inspire you to build a better business so that you may pursue your purpose with passion and live the life of your dreams. Last week on the podcast, I shared my 12 steps to business success in architecture. That's the same presentation I shared at the recent AIA CRAN Symposium. And if you haven't listened to that, go back entrearchitect.com slash episode 92 and listen to that. I share a lot of what, what I, I talk about on the podcast, and a lot of what I, what I write on the blog, uh, it's everything you need to know to be successful. And I proposed that if you learned how to execute on each of the 12 steps, you would be a successful architect with a profitable business, leading you to create more art and better architecture. This week, we're continuing where I left off last week. We're going to go deeper. We're going to get more practical, and we're going to discuss what it takes to be a successful small business, whether you're running an ice cream stand a manufacturing company, or an architecture firm. This week on the Entree Architect Podcast, I'm speaking with CEO of Crown Point Cabinetry, Brian Stowell, and we discussed the anatomy of a successful small business. 
This episode of the Entree Architect podcast is sponsored by ArcaSnapper, a great way to create and manage field reports. Learn more at entrearchitect.com slash ArcaSnapper. And FreshBooks, the easiest way to send invoices, manage expenses, and track your time. Learn more at freshbooks.com slash architect. Brian Stowell, welcome to the Entree Architect podcast. Well, thank you, Mark. It's great to be here. It is. Uh, it is great to have you here. I, I've um, I've been hoping to have this conversation for a long time. You are um, uh, a leader at Crown Point uh, Cabinetry up in New Hampshire, and as a uh, an architect here in Westchester County, New York, we're the owners of Five Cat Studio. We've talked about Five Cat Studio quite a bit on the podcast, but Crown Point has always been uh, a, a great partner for us. And I want I wanted to make sure with the audience that they understand that this podcast is not a commercial for Crown Point, but I wanted to sort of invite you guys to come and, and talk to us uh, about a successful business. Last week, I put together a, uh, a podcast on the 12 steps to business success in architecture, and I broke down the fundamentals of business. And and what I wanted to do today is look at Crown Point uh, because of the the great experience that we've had over over a decade now. We've done over a dozen kitchens with you. Um, you have a great product. It's uh, you, you have superior customer service, uh, and I and I love the fact that you're a family owned business. And so uh, I wanted to hear from you how you make that all work. How how do you make me as an architect and my clients, uh, make my clients happy and make me as an architect look good. <laughs> it's really, well, uh, it's really it, how it comes down. It, it's easy to make you look good, but, <laughs> um, uh, other architects, sometimes we've, we've uh, run into some stumbling blocks, but the architectural community as a whole, we're very happy to work with. Uh, but, uh, thank you for the kind words. Uh, I, I will do this very briefly. Uh, this business was started in the garage by my dad, uh, about 38 years ago. At one point, he had mom and all seven of us kids working for him. And uh, we, people used to say, oh, you guys must fight like cats and dogs. And the answer is no, we never fought like cats and dogs. And and uh, dad always made sure we were too busy. And mom was all, always there to listen when, when we, as younger kids, uh, whined about how hard we were working. But um, uh, no, it's it's I, I credit my dad. I credit my mom. And uh, when you talked about stellar uh, customer service, uh, you know, that, that was my dad. Uh, he, he taught us how important it was to go above and beyond, uh, when you're working with somebody and, and, uh, um, really, I mean, er everything that we do here comes from the foundation that he laid, uh, uh you know, almost 40 years ago. So. Oh, that's, I, that's fantastic. I, what I'd like to do is use crown point as a case study and basically, you know, uh, discuss the anatomy of a successful small business, because I've, I've always talked about, architecture firms as small businesses that that what we're doing although we're artists many of us feel that the art comes first my argument is that profit should come first and then the art uh, you'll have a lot more time to do the art and so what I, what I'd like to do is start with sort of your origin story T talk about uh, the history of Crown Point and and give us a background on how it started and and uh, and how you got to where you are today Okay. Yeah. I, I, uh, when you talk about profits coming first, I, I laugh because we had nonprofit down with science. But uh, uh, my, my dad basically <clears throat> was very talented with his hands. 
And uh, when he was 18 years old, to give you an idea, he built his first home. And I said, Dad, how'd you know how to do that? And he said, I bought a book. And I'm thinking, I could have an encyclopedia and not be able to build a house, but that's another story. But uh, he was just always very good at it. And he was a teacher uh, and a principal for many, many, many years. And because he had seven kids, he used to work nights and weekends to make sure that we were all fed. Of course, mom worked third shift uh, uh, to do her part. Let me be clear on that. And uh, uh, he got to the point where uh, he was he was enjoying the the fine woodworking uh, portion of construction more than uh, being out on on job sites and and uh, that kind of thing. So he um, uh, he decided that he was going to build a kitchen for somebody that was local, and uh, it uh, it came out really nice. And somebody else asked him to build one, and it got to the point where he said, you know, geez, I'd rather I think I'd rather be doing this and. So he found a, a local dealer in town to uh, uh, to display his product, and uh, the rest, as they say, is history. But uh, you know that that's how the business uh, basically got started. But at one, I mean, at one point, we're in the garage, and I use the term garage. It wasn't really a garage that you'd park a car in. It was an old Victorian house that uh, uh, you know you could see through the boards of the great outdoors. Hmm. You know, we heated it with a wood stove. <clears throat> Not the best idea when you're spraying finish in a garage with a wood stove, but. Uh, all all the things we went through uh, when we were younger, but it was just uh, it really more than anything else. It it wasn't he didn't have a grand plan. He would tell you other than to feed the family uh, and do something that he enjoyed. So that was that was the beginning of the business. And as we grew, uh, more and more family members came into the business, and uh, we eventually got to the point where we said, okay, we've got to uh, uh, we've got to have a, a, a little bit more organized structure. And uh, I would say it was probably. We had grown to the point uh, where we had about 75 dealers throughout New England, uh, a couple in New York, uh, and um, uh, the 90, 90, uh, 1990 recession uh, really hammered us hard. And um, uh, you know, we we literally we had family meetings every day because we weren't making any money, and we're like, okay, we're going to keep the business afloat. Are we going to are we going to go out of business? How are we going to make things work? And I mean, I remember a meeting distinctly with mom and dad where. You know, they sat down with us and said, look, here's the deal. We took our last $10,000 out of savings. Dad was just about my age. And uh, he said, uh, um, we, we did that to cover payroll. And we're expecting some money this week. But if we don't get it, then um, uh, we're going to be in trouble. Uh, but by law, we, we pay the employees first. And uh, because you're kids, you get paid second. And your mother and I get paid third. There's a possibility we pay you. And you can't cash your check. We would tell you that. And your mother and I can go about a month, and then we're in trouble, uh, and and then we're completely done. So that that was, uh, you know, those those memories are as fresh as uh, yesterday. And uh, we had some some uh, discussions about how to make ends meet and things we could cut. And and I learned a lot about what made a business tick back then. Um, and and it was uh, it was a very difficult time for us. But it was also a time where. And, and my dad was, he was very fiscally conservative. Um, he, he didn't want to borrow money, which was great. But I can remember thinking to myself, you know, this is, uh, this is not a lot of fun. And we could, we could find a way to make money. Uh, so I convinced my dad to let me uh, make some changes on the floor. Uh, I uh, let some, let make, make some changes with how we approach the, employee, the employees. Uh, meaning, I mean, they liked working for us. They felt we were honest. But, you know, we just couldn't provide him a lot. Yeah. And uh, he, he, you know, I sat down and said, here's what I want to do. And he, he was great. He said, you know, I, I think you're, you're naive. 
but if you want to try these things, he said, I, I will support you. Uh, he said, if you want to spend money, you got to come see me because he said, we, we really don't have any. And um, so I said, okay. So I, uh, uh, he said, the last thing was, look, uh, I don't think it's going, I don't think it can go a lot better. Uh, and it's, it, you know, it's, it's manufacturing, it's work. Uh, there's, that's the way it is. Nobody gets rich. Um, and he said, I'm not unhappy with how production runs. He said, that's your brother's jurisdiction. So you want to make all these changes. I will support it as long as your brother supports it. He said, uh, I wouldn't let him go in and change sales because you're in charge of sales. Uh, I wouldn't let him go and charge sales uh, without uh, your permission. So you go see him to see if you can make the changes on the floor. I said, okay, all right. I appreciate that. So I went to see my brother, Jeff, and uh, I said, I'm all excited. I tell him all the changes I want to make. And he looks at me kind of blankly and he says, uh, you, you want to do my job? And I said, well, it's not that I want to do your job, but I think we need to make some changes so that we, you know, we, we have a chance at making money. And, you know, our, our employee retention was terrible. We had 300 W-2s at the end of the end, end of the year and we had 100 employees. You know, what's that tell you, Mark? <laughs> um, and uh, uh, so I told him what I wanted to do. And he said, no, honestly, Brian. He said, I'd love to have you do my job. Dad picked me because I was the oldest. I don't enjoy this job. It's, no, it's nothing that I ever wanted to do. I feel like I babysit 100 people. And if you, wanted, if you want my help, tell me. If you want me to stay off the floor, tell me. Whatever you want me to do, I'll, I'll do. He said, I, I just, I'm worn out. So I said, okay. So I went out and I thanked him. I went out on the shop floor and uh, I shut the entire shop down. And I stood up on a table and I said, uh, uh, things change today. I said, I know people like us and they feel we're honest and hardworking, but it's my theory that we, we, uh, we don't focus on quality first. It goes out the door, people are happy, but I think we're building every custom kitchen twice. What, year, what got, year was this, Brian? Uh, right around 1990. 1990. And when, when, when did your dad start in the garage? Uh, 1978. Okay. So from 1978 to 1990, you grew out of the garage into a... A factory, essentially. Yeah, we. we yeah. Uh, Dad's first year, he did thirty-five thousand in sales. Then the next year, one hundred and fourteen. The next year, three hundred and fifteen. The next year, four ninety-five. The next year, nine ninety-five. The next year, one point uh, five million. So we were on a pretty strong yeah. growth curve because you're you're building custom cabinetry, Mark, at that point. Right, and then the then the recession hit, and yeah, and took a big chunk out of everything. Yeah, really threw us for a loop, and we just we you know we weren't prepared for it. Yeah. And, so, we've, uh, and we've gone, we just recently have gone through a massive recession. And so a lot of architects listening can certainly relate to all of that. Um, so what did you do at that point? You stood up on the, you shut everything down, you stood up on the bench and you said, you know, we're going to make some changes in order to survive this. So what did you do? Well, I said, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to focus on quality first. Uh, because we don't, I said, I, I, I swear we build every kitchen twice. And if you don't understand quality, then we will uh, teach it to you. If you refuse, if you already know quality, we're going to ask you to help teach it to people. If you refuse to learn quality, then we're going to ask you to work somewhere else. And if you, uh, um, if you can't, and this would be the most painful, if you can't learn quality, then we're going to tell you we appreciate your energies, but we're going to say it's not a good fit for you. So uh, basically, we had uh, situations where Literally, we were paying people to redo something that one of their their uh, um, other members of they weren't teams at the time, but other members of the department were doing. 
So we just we were just working to keep ourselves employed, and, and there's no money in that. Was there a definition to quality? Did they know what that meant? Uh, not really. No. So we had to we had to define that because uh, it, it was uh, there were too many ideas as to what was acceptable. Right. And that was that was a uh, not a place where uh, we were going to be successful until we could get that defined. And uh, uh, it was uh, it wasn't an easy process. But I uh, I told them, I said, look, here's the deal. I'm we don't make any money because we waste too much labor and materials. Not your fault, ours. Uh, but I'm going to make you a deal. I'm going to get off this table and I'm going to every department and I'm going to ask you to make one change that I think is just a waste of time, energy and money. And when that's successful, we'll make more money. And then I'm going to ask you to do something else. And then when that's successful, we're going to make more money. I'm going to ask you to do something else. But all along the way, I'm going to share it with you. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to buy donuts every morning for people so that they understand I'm going first. And you could say, well, I thought we didn't have money for donuts. Well, we will as soon as we stop wasting some of the stuff that I'm going to ask you to stop doing. And what happened was we, and I, God, I hate to use the term because it's so overused, but we empowered the people that work in here to come to us to make change, uh, to be an important part of the, the process. And, you know, we unleashed the greatest amount of ideas and uh, improvements. It, it, it was, it was mind numbing and all. That's so important to give the power to the people, like you say. I mean, it's essentially giving them ownership of their role, of their position, so so they can be proud of what they do and find ways to do it better. Yeah, it, yeah. Because the, the truth of the matter is, uh, it, it really doesn't matter what what business you're in. I don't care if you're in the ice cream cone business where you're making ice creams during the summer for people. There there are improvements that can be made, but as the owner or the president or the boss, you don't know what all of them are. You're not out there every day. And I got, I got to a point where I said, look, I want every person that works for me to come up with a, a list of 10 things that they would change if they were in charge. Now, please be serious about this. Don't write down, pay myself a million dollars a year. That's not a constructive uh, suggestion. So when, when I'm asking you to come up with suggestions, what changes would you make in what you do every day, maybe stuff that's provided to you, maybe vendors that we've picked that don't work out well for what you're trying to build. We want to hear it all. I was so buried with the suggestions, it was <laughs> unbelievable. And I, I mean, I got to the point where we had to triage the suggestions because there were there were too many of them coming in at the same time. And, and I don't want to give you the idea that that we were the world's messiest company. We weren't. But when you've got 93 people and you and you and you build custom product, uh, there are a lot of things that go on that that just kind of, you know, morph over time into something that that's not very helpful uh, for uh, contributing to the bottom line. And we found out that most of the time it wasn't the employees that were doing a bad job. It was we had asked them to do things that were that were not completely feasible. As an example, uh, I can remember a, a, a pine kitchen that, that got sent back from finishing twice uh, to what was then known as the sanding department. And it, I was frustrated. I'm like, God, can't they sand this right? So I went out to sand it myself. And I, I said, there, now I know it's right. We stained it and had the same problem. We had provided the wrong grit paper to the people in the sanding, in the sanding uh, department. Uh, and, and we didn't realize it. 
So, you know, I was fortunate in that I was smart enough not to stand up and say, a lot of you guys are killing me. So, you know, there are going to be some heads rolling because I would have been I'd have had to roll my head first. But uh, uh, it was a, it was amazing. The things that you learned that you had no idea were going on and, and people just tolerated it because they're like, well, they want us to do this. So we're going to do it. Right. And once you ask them, what holds you up from being successful? What what slows you down from doing a good job? What 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 prevents you from building quality? It's amazing what people will tell you. And you think to yourself, oh, they're going to just come out and tell you anyway. They really don't because they're thinking these are the rules. This is the company. This is how they want things done. So this is how we'll do it. Yeah. They don't want to make waves. They just want to get their job done and get paid. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I got to tell you, uh, we went from we had we had 90 close to uh, close to 100 employees, uh, but we had uh, in about six months, we went from 73 that built cabinetry out of those 90 something down to about 47 that built cabinetry and we were building more product. Because you and became more the, efficient through the through the changes suggested. Yeah. And, and, and I got to tell you, um, th this this is the God's honest truth. We were we really weren't building the average kitchen twice before it went out the door. Uh, we were building it about three times, <laughs> and and it was you know that's why we didn't make any money. So were there specific systems that you put in place after you you uh, received all of that information from your employees? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. We the systems that we have today. Now I say that I say that, but I I have to add the the uh, but we're not done. I mean, I've got two meetings this afternoon with two different uh, groups of teams to say, how can we improve the order processing right. uh, uh, that, that we that we do every day? Uh, because if we're going to continue to get better, we've got to sit down and, and knock our heads together and say, you know, what's working well, what's not? Right. It, so 25 it, years later, you're still improving the systems. Yeah. And, and, and we'll improve them until I, I can't walk anymore. Would, would you uh, so, say that systems, you know, as a bottom line, that's that's what changed Crown Point from from that struggling company to a successful company? Is this no, establishing no, what, systems? What, what changed was uh, making sure the employees knew how important they were in the process. So that was that's the priority. That, is, that was is it. to empower the employees and make sure they understand how how valued they are. Yeah. Yeah. Because what what we found was. There were a lot of employees that we sold short. Th these are all true confessions, Mark. Uh, you know, you would look at an employee and say, oh, they're not capable of this. Really? Uh, why don't you find out? You know, don't, don't let them go out and fly a, a jumbo jet with 400 people on board. That's not what I'm talking about. But you would be amazed how, how much people really can do when they're given the opportunity. You know, everybody, everybody's got their ceiling. I've got my ceiling. Uh, but but uh, you... You shouldn't make those judgments as, oh, this person's only capable of this. I've worked with them, so I know they're only capable of this. When you uh, unleash uh, somebody's potential, it's, it's, um, it's really exciting as to what can be accomplished. I I'll tell you that the, the uh, biggest change to make that happen was my wife, who um, she's the smarter of the two of us. She's the college-educated one. She came I can, in and I can she relate to that. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> she came in and converted the departments to teams. And everybody's like, oh, we're a team, we're a team. Well, I'll give you an idea what our teams are. Our teams, I tell people, oh, yeah, I'm so important. I signed the paychecks, but I'm so unimportant. I can't hire anybody. I'm not allowed to hire somebody and put them on the door team. I'm not allowed to hire somebody and put them on one of the teams because I don't work on those teams. 
So I'm not, I, I guess the only person I could ever hire would be a personal assistant and I'm not going to do that. So uh, the, the teams, my, my sister's human resource manager, she'll do pre-interviews and say, I think this might be a good fit for this team if the team is looking for somebody. But the teams actually interview and hire the employees and then they train them and then they review them and then they're responsible for their raises. They're also responsible for discipline, should there be any. I don't want to make it sound like we hope to discipline people. We hope not to. Uh, but uh, it, it's these teams meet every day, every morning for a meeting to discuss the day's production, the day's requirements, uh, any issues that they might have, whether or not they've got somebody out, whether you know whether or not uh, they're they've got some help, they can go help somebody else, uh, a, a different team. Uh, it's it's I, I have I have people that come in here, uh, different business owners. They'll come in and they'll sit in on my team meetings and they'll be like, where did you find these people? I, I don't even go into the meetings. My brother-in-law is, is in charge of all the cabinet making teams, so he's the one that, that uh, sits in on the meetings. I said, well, they're, they're just people that we gave them the opportunity to excel. And they're like, man, we wish we had employees like that. And I said, well, it's not like we, we grow them out back in a garden. You know, these, these are people that you hire. And uh, you you train them on the system and you give them the opportunity to contribute and uh, you'd be surprised what you can get out of people. Um, now, that being said, you better make sure they know how much you love them. You better make sure they know how much you appreciate them and you better make sure you share with them. Uh, and when I say that, we my wife and I instituted a gain sharing program, which when we started, I told the employees, my goal is to have you get paid for overtime and not work it. And uh, we instituted a program where we say, here's the budget for this uh, particular job. And if you guys don't spend it, we're going to set it aside. And after, the, after uh, you know, we track it uh, weekly, after four weeks, if there's money left over, then what happens is we will pay that out to you because we were going to spend it anyway. And what it does is it, co it promotes uh, cooperation, helping each other's teams, uh, cross-training, uh, you know, looking out for each other. Um, you know, I, I could go on and on. And we've had that gain sharing program for oof, just about since 19, maybe 1992, 93. And uh, during, you know, during the darkest days after 08, we went, you know, four years without any gain sharing because I had more employees than work. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we like last, uh, last period, the gain sharing was 19%, which means basically work four weeks, get paid for five. And the employees, but my point is not, oh, aren't I generous? No, the, the point is the employees generated it so they get to keep it. So they get excited by it. And every day they, they how are we doing? How are we doing? Uh, but once again, I want them to be vested in our success, something that they can see they directly contribute to. Right. And, they, and that, that reinforces that value, uh, that, that ownership, the feeling of ownership, uh, and, and encourages them to, to work harder and, and make more improvements and make a, a higher quality product. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, before all this started, when there were departments, there were, there were departments that used to laugh at other departments that had to work Friday. Uh, you know, we work four 10 hour days cause that's what the employees want to do. And I told them as long as you can continue to work safe, safely and build quality, I don't care if you work four tens and have three day weekends. But, uh, if we've got a safety issue or a quality issue, then we'll go back to the five eights, which we have not had, but, uh, they're, they're, there used to be departments before they were teams 
that used to laugh at the other departments that had to work on Fridays or even Saturdays because they 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 thought it was funny. And that sounds cruel, but that that's honest. And uh, it was very disrespectful, but it happened. And uh, uh, now with gain sharing, the all of the teams, they, they don't want other teams to come in and work overtime. They, they don't, because if somebody comes and works overtime, then the payroll goes up and then there's nothing left over for gain sharing. So they want to know, is there a reason why people are having to work Friday? Can they go over and help? Can they do something? Uh, is there something they're doing that's preventing them from being more successful? It, it's an ongoing, we're all in this together thought process. I want to take a quick break here to say thank you to ArcaSnapper and FreshBooks for their support as platform sponsors of Entree Architect. As a platform sponsor, ArcaSnapper and FreshBooks has provided funding and support for our overall mission to become an influential force in the profession of architecture. They recognize the need for small firms to build better businesses in order to be better architects. ArcaSnapper is a simple tool for creating and managing field reports. With ArcaSnapper, architects can draft reports on-site using their phone or tablet. ArcaSnapper is easy to use and saves a ton of time. Grow your business instead of struggling with field reports. If you want to learn more about ArcaSnapper, and you should, you can get a free 30-day trial at entrearchitect.com slash ArcaSnapper. And FreshBooks is the easy-to-use invoicing software designed to help small firm owners get organized save time invoicing, and get paid faster. It takes care of invoicing, expense tracking, estimating, reporting, and it all happens in the cloud. So you have access for your information from anywhere you have access to the internet. It saves time, it helps you get paid faster, and it's easy and convenient. To access your free 30-day trial of FreshBooks, go to freshbooks.com architect and enter Entree Architect in the How Did You Hear About Us section. So do you have, so you do have systems, obviously. And so are the systems documented in a, in a manual? How, how, when somebody's brought in as a new team member, how are they trained? Uh, they're trained, they're trained by their team members. But is there and, a standard on which they're basing that team training? Uh if you ask me to provide an, uh, you know, a, a big book with all of those uh, procedures, I would tell you that's an area where we lack. Mm -hmm. What we do is we've got so many people that see, once again, another true confession mark. Uh, we've got so many people that are trained on the different systems out there. People are always trained the same way. Right. So not all of the systems are documented. Are some of them? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, but if you said to me, is every single one of them documented? I'd say, no, that's a true confession. We're working on that. Yeah, because I mean, the experience that I've had has been very consistent, even through because we've worked now with three separate designers over the last decade plus. Um, right. And and one of the great things is that we are assigned a designer, and so when when we work with Crown Point, we work with that same person each time, um, and then uh, they've moved on, and we've gotten a new a new one, uh, and we've worked with them, and then they've retired and have moved on, and now we're on our third one. Each time has been a very very positive and very consistent process so clearly they're they're following some whether it's trained or whether it's in a manual some sort of process that that shows them how to do what they do yeah i i will tell you i'm, I'm i appreciate you mentioning that uh you worked uh you worked with a uh christine, christine who was terrific yeah, yeah. and she she retired yeah and you worked with 
uh, with Carol. Uh, Carol yeah. was terrific, and she retired. Uh, my my goal here is to once I hire people, not have them leave me. Yeah. And uh, when they retire, I'm I'm you know I, I stand up and I cry and and wish them well and thank them for what they've done. But uh, we don't have a lot of turnover, um, uh, especially sales. Uh, the reason you've had you you're on your third is because of retirements. As, right. As exactly. Mentioned. Right. But but I can tell you one of the um, one of the things I didn't mention in all this was uh, the reason why we sell direct. And the reason why we work directly with you and your clients. Right. And so originally you talked about dealers. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah. So, so tell me where that transition happened. Well, uh, uh, we once again did it, the, uh, uh, did it the way everybody else did it. If you wanted to uh, be a millwork shop that, uh, or a custom cabinet maker that, that people retailed your product, if you will, you would go find a home center or a kitchen store and say, would you carry my line? And we were successful in finding uh, 75s, you know, 76, 77 at the time, uh, uh, different dealers in different locations that if there was somebody in that area, that's who they, uh, you know, a, a prospect, a client, that's who they would deal with. And um, when, when the recession came around, uh, we were trying to figure out ways to get dealers to sell more products. And uh, my dad would say to me, you know, geez, uh, you know, how's it going? And I'd say, you know, uh, uh, struggling, but uh, we're working on it. And I can remember uh, going into a dealer uh, that won't be named. And um, uh, there were two uh, very nice women that worked there. And my brother and I had teamed up to go out and, and see if we could wrangle up some uh, more business. And uh, we said, uh, how's it going? Oh, bad. Really, really bad. This was the 90 recession. And uh, I said, yeah, yeah, it's been been tough. We could tell you that ourselves. And they said, see that desk calendar there? They had one of the big desk calendars. I said, yeah. They said, see those X's on the days? And I said, yeah. They said, we put an X for every day that nobody comes in the showroom. And mm -hmm. I said, yeah, that looks like you don't have a lot of showroom traffic. I said, well, I just spent a, a pile of money on a, uh, a planning guide for professional designers, which was basically architects. So I said, uh, have you contacted any architects in your area? Uh, to let them know that you'd like to stop by and drop it off and, and tell them what Crown Point's up to. And they said, no, there's no point in it. And I said, what do you mean there's no point in it? And they said, nobody's doing anything. And I said, well, somebody's doing something. The whole world hasn't come to a stop. Oh, no, it really has. I said, so you, I just spent a lot of money on these. You don't want to, they cost you guys like nothing. You, all you've got to do is go out and, and introduce them to the architects and drop them off. And no, there's really no point in it. So uh, I walked out of that dealership with my brother and I said, you know, we've hooked our future to these guys' wagons. Yeah. And at the same time, I had, uh, uh, in a six-month time frame, I had three phone calls from three different uh, individuals that had owned Crown Point before, but had moved to like Baltimore, Maryland, and, and other locations where we didn't have a dealer, and said, hey, we, we uh, had Crown Point before. And uh, we would like to do Crown Point again. Where's your dealer down here? And I said, oh, we don't have a dealer down there. And they're like, oh, that's too bad. I said, yeah, I'm really sorry about that. But thanks for thinking of us. They said, no problem. So my dad would say, did we sell anything today? And I said, no, but I did tell somebody to go away. And he said, yeah, I'm sure you did. And uh, I said, no, they, they moved and blah, blah, blah. And he said, uh, oh, that's too bad. I said, yeah. At the same time this is happening, I get three phone calls. Once again, everything happens in threes, I guess, over a probably a five-month period two women that were crying, one man that was yelling at me. And I'm like, 
you know, I picked up the phone and, you know, this is Brian, can I help you? Because they wanted to talk to the guy in charge. And and they were very upset that Crown Point, they said Crown Point hadn't shipped what they were supposed to ship and they were sick of us lying to them and they're, you know, when was it going to end? And I'm like, I tell me who you are, let me get to the bottom of this, find out what's going on. In all three cases, uh, it was dealers that were on COD because they owed me a lot of money and it was like molding or a filler or something small. And they didn't order it from me because they just figured the customer would go away and uh, and they didn't have money to pay me, I guess, is what they decided. So they kept telling the customer that uh, Crown pointed basically, uh, uh, keep saying it's going to be shipped and it's not being shipped. So I apologized to all of them. I ship them what they're looking for at no cost because I had selected the dealers. I felt they were my responsibility. So I, said to, I sat down with my brother and my father and I said, uh, let me get this right. We have customers that are now saying bad things about us because dealers have lied about us. We have uh, uh, dealers that don't want to go out and find business because they figure the world has come to an end. And we've got people calling us that want product that we can't sell to because we don't have a dealer in that area. And we're trying to figure out whether or not we're going to stay in business. What's wrong with this picture? So, um, I put together a plan where we were going to uh, work directly uh, outside of the dealer territory. Because you give somebody a word, you don't break it. This wasn't to replace the dealers. This was outside the dealer territory. And uh, I put together a plan and I presented it to my dad. And I said, uh, okay, here's what I want to do. I want to sell direct outside the dealer territory. We'll, we'll keep the dealer business, but hopefully this will supplement it. And, uh, you know, here's how it's going to work, blah, blah, blah. And uh, he said, well, let me think about it. So I come back every day. If you, yes, yes, yes. He said, well, let me sit down and tell you 10 reasons why it won't work. And they're all legitimate reasons. Probably six of them I haven't thought of. So he's asking me what I would do in that instance. And I kept making up an answer on the fly because I was still convinced I could do it. And uh, finally, he said, uh, you know, he said stuff like, uh, you know, what, what happens if a, uh, if a builder calls and said it was damaged? You have a door that was damaged, but he didn't note it on delivery. I said, I give him a new door. He said, aren't you worried that they're just going to damage stuff and we're going to pay for it? I said, yeah, it can happen. But I, I think, you know, most people are honest. So I don't think they're going to do that to us on a major scale. Uh, he said, well, what happens, you know, when, you know, uh, the measurements aren't right? And I said, well, we'll develop a system so that it's very, uh, very tough to get the measurements wrong. But uh, he said, but what if they say, hey, that wasn't the measurement and we need a new cabinet? And I said, well, we'll give them a new cabinet. He said, aren't you concerned about being ripped off? I said, uh, not, not, not really, I, I guess, maybe, but no. And uh, he finally gets to the end and he said, uh, uh, I think if it was such a good idea, I think it's fraught with peril, he said, but I, I think if it was such a good idea, somebody else would be doing it by now. And uh, he said, how much, how much do you think it would cost to get off the ground? And I said, about $100,000. Well, Mark, I might as well have told him $100 million <laughs> because, I mean, literally, we didn't, we, did, we didn't have any money. So he said, okay, well, here's the deal. Um, you, you're still convinced you can make it work? I said, yeah, I'm absolutely convinced. Uh, that's, that's what youth will do for you. And um, uh, he said, well, here's the deal. We'll go down to the bank. He said, we'll, we'll go to the bank. And if you can convince them to lend us the money, then, then we'll try it. Otherwise, he said, I think we're done. I said, okay, can we go now? He said, no, Brian, you need to make an appointment with the bank. I said, okay. So uh, we call the bank and we're going to meet them the next day. I go down there and I do my pitch and they, they summarize it this way. So let's get this right, Brian. You want us to lend you $100,000 basically unsecured because right now you owe us money for a mortgage on a building that is worth less than what the mortgage is. You aren't making money. 
you're not sure if you're going to stay in business and you want to do something nobody else has ever done. I said, <laughs> yes, that's all correct. And they said, yeah, we'll get back to you. So uh, they called the next day. We'll lend you the money. So the bank had faith in me and uh, they lent me the money. And I can tell you that although the program has changed, just like everything else in here, it became so successful that we got to the point where we said we can't we can't have dealers and direct because I, I, I would get phone calls, Mark. Somebody call, hey, my sister got a kitchen from you. She came up and toured. She loved it. It's beautiful. It's everything she wanted. She's really excited. I'm, I'm doing a house. I want to do the same thing. I said, great. So can I work with you? Absolutely. Where do you live? Uh, we live in, uh, you know, Wolfboro, New Hampshire. I said, I've got a dealer there. They said, well, what, what does that mean? I said, you will go to the dealer. Well, I don't want to go to the dealer. Yeah. I said, they're a great dealer. Fantastic people. Some of the nicest people you've met. Yeah, but why can't I deal directly with you? And I said, because I have a dealer relationship in your area, and I gave my word. Well, is it going to cost me more money? I said, well, a little, you know, but they're going to hold your hand and help you pick out countertops and faucets and that kind of stuff. And they said, yeah, we don't want that. We want to do what my sister did. So now I was running into a problem where I was literally telling people to go away that wanted to buy directly from me. So at the, it, what we did was dealer relationships were kind of like uh, boyfriends and girlfriends when you're younger. You know, when you first meet them, you're like, you're so infatuated and you're going to be in love forever. And then not that far down the road, you're like, yeah, we're not that compatible. So you break up and a new one comes along and, until you meet your wife. And uh, uh, I got down to the point where I had separated from about uh, 68 out of the 73 dealers. And I had five of them left that were really terrific, like the one in Wolfboro, New Hampshire, just fantastic people. And I finally had to go to them and say, look, you've, I felt terrible. Literally, it sounded like this. You've been the perfect wife. I'm leaving you. Um, uh, because they'd never done me wrong, but I couldn't advertise direct nationally. I kept telling people, no, I can't do something in your area. And it just, it just became uh, too much. So we picked, we, we picked one method, which was selling direct. And uh, we've, we've never looked back. But based on that, we have to run the tightest ship because, Mark, you're close by compared to some of my customers. If you ship custom, you will do whole house projects in California. It will cost me more money because I, I don't charge for shipping. It'll cost me more money to ship a cabinet than what a cabinet costs if we make a mistake. So when you talk about how people are really good with the order process and it's all the same, that is, that, that's a result of us learning the hard way that you just cannot, cannot, cannot let stuff happen that you could let stuff happen when you had a dealer. You're like, oh, the dealer run out and take care of it. You know, you, you just can't do that. So that's, that's where a lot of the uh, tight quality control came from. That was selling direct. So. Yeah. It, it's uh, all of these, these changes that you made are, are, are exactly why we like working with you. Because when, when we have had issues, because every project has issues. Sure. Um, not every ki kitchen has had issues, but you yep. know, every architecture project has issues. And, and occasionally we've had some issues uh, where you know something got dinged in the truck or whatever, I, I've never ever had pushback. I've I've called you guys and you've just replaced it. And so clearly that's a that's a policy, um, and that's why we keep working with you. And when when people ask me who I recommend, that's why I recommend you because that's how you guys make us look good. Is that when there's an issue, that issue's resolved. Um, that's what separates you, I think, from most of the other cabinet companies, even the local dealers, that you don't go away after you get paid. You, you're just as available as you were before you got paid. And, and very many other uh, 
local dealers, once they get paid, it's very difficult to, to get them back. Um, so well, I, I, my, 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 my premise is that, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it may sound corny, but it's the golden rule. You know, yeah. how do you want to be treated? If right. something goes wrong, and, and, and like I said to my dad, uh, who, who was Mr. Service, I could tell you, I said, I cannot, I cannot, I'm going to use your name like I knew you at the time, I cannot call Mark a liar. If Mark says I have this problem and we didn't notice it, I have to take his word for it. Because if I'm wrong, what kind of person am I? Yeah. So that, that's why we do it that way. Do we get taken advantage of? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. There, there are certain characters we've dealt with in the past, whether it's customers or builders or what have you, that, uh, and luckily it's a small percentage that, that uh, you know, kind of sniff us out and they're like, hey, um, uh, but, but truly uh, it's a policy that, that will never change as long as this family owns this company. Yeah, that's a lesson that we learned too from working with you. We've done the same thing at 5Cat, that if there's an issue, even if it's not really our fault, but it's something that we should have flagged, I don't even push back. I just resolve that issue. I either either work to fix it or very. Uh, there's been times where I've paid for it, just yeah. to, to just to make sure that that issue doesn't become a crisis. To just make it go away, um, it's worth it because then you get another job and you get another yeah. job and you get another job, and that payment that you may have paid to make the the problem go away is nothing compared to the amount of money that you make on on the multiple jobs that you get because of the relationships you you enforce reinforce. Right. Right. I, I, I'll give you give you an idea. You know, people are like you, you, you talk like you guys never make a mistake. I said, no, 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 that's not that's not true. I talk like we've got the strictest quality control that that uh, uh, that we've seen in the industry. But that being said, you know, I had a designer here. Great guy. Great designer made a mistake. And uh, the customer's refrigerator was not going to work in that in that uh, layout. I bought the refrigerator because they couldn't return it to the uh, uh, return it to the store. They said, no, it's because uh, the client had the cabinetry in storage for nine months, um, but not, you know, uh, so they went to put in the refrigerator. They said, that doesn't swing open because of this design. And uh, they said, we, and now we can't return the refrigerator. We got to go out and buy a brand new one. And I said, uh, well, I'm embarrassed. Uh, it's clearly our mistake. Uh, would you be happy if I bought that refrigerator off of you? So you didn't have to, because you they're telling you you can't return it. And uh, then you're free to buy a new refrigerator. And they said, you would do that? And I said, yeah, it's my fault. It doesn't work. So uh, believe it or not, my folks ended up with a refrigerator because they remodeled their kitchen. So, you know, there, there's always, <laughs> always a, a solution. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, that that's a rare instance. But, you know, there, there probably aren't a lot of custom cabinet makers uh, in this country that would buy a refrigerator, you know. So uh, but, but once again, uh, it, it's not about, you know, what we did for somebody it's about how we operate and and what our uh, what our process is yeah uh, i i will tell you i know it's different working in an office environment but but the one thing i didn't talk about uh is is safety if you work in a woodworking shop uh if safety isn't a top priority uh you're you're not going to keep you're not going to keep uh quality employees that's all there is to it so w when i when i talk about making quality that the number one focus Really, quality is the number two focus. Safety is number one because um, if 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 you don't have a safe shop, you know, God forbid. So uh, um, I I don't want to overlook that. I know safety isn't the same same concern for an architect working in an office. Not that he's not concerned about safety, but they don't have the same uh, uh, the same things that you could run into that could be a real problem. Um, so yes, yeah, it's it's definitely not it's not the same. Absolutely, we don't have 
open, you know, we don't have saws in our office. Right, right, right. <laughs> but, but I, you know, I would say that, that especially more recently, it's become more aware, we've become more aware of the hazards of, of, in, of being in an office just from sitting, from sitting all day. That if you're sitting from, you know, seven o'clock in the morning until seven o'clock at night and not getting up over the years, that starts becoming a, a problem where it becomes, it comes, it becomes a health issue. Uh, and you have carpal tunnel syndrome. And those are, those are things that, that are becoming uh, issues in offices that we weren't really aware of before. And that's something that, that if you are uh, looking at safety in your office, just as much as looking at safety in a workshop, uh, those are the things that we should be addressing with our, with our staff. Yeah, I, I will tell you, and that's an excellent point. Right now, uh, I'm standing at my desk because I bought one of the desks that goes up and down. Yeah. I went to all of the people in my office and said, if you want one, I will buy one for you. I've had people in here that said, boy, this mouse isn't working. I spend a lot of time like uh, uh, drafters, CAD designers yep. uh, uh, that say, boy, I, I'm, you know, my wrist is sore. I say, well, let's, let's do a little ergonomic study and make sure that you've got the best uh, mouse for the job. Uh, I mean, we just... One of the one of the things that uh, uh, and and you mentioned it quite clearly and uh, uh, a lot of people think oh safety means preventing an accident it's really about preventing an incident carpal tunnel is an incident yeah uh, so uh, those are things that if I'm if I'm running a, a a firm like yourself those are things I have to be aware of and say how can I prevent those especially in in my case I've got people that have worked for me for twenty thirty years and if you're doing repetitive stuff out on the floor. Your body parts can wear out. Right. My my last two claims were for shoulder surgery for somebody that sprayed for me for over twenty years. So what did we do? We said, okay, we've got to find a way to minimize this, and we put in a new finishing line last uh, last December. So there, it's it's the never ending quest to make sure that you minimize the the hazards or the incidents. Uh, and in your case, they they may be different, but they're still there. Yeah. So so um, I would say that. From what I'm hearing from you, safety first. Yeah, absolutely. Then quality. Yep. Then then teams focusing on the people, uh, which include gain gain sharing and and giving them the power to make the decisions. Yep. Um, and and obviously, sort of over overlaying everything are systems that sort of allow these things, whether they're documented or just uh, internally communicated those systems clearly help you achieve those things. Are there anything else that, that you changed to, to, uh, to be more successful? Well, I think, I think when we move to selling direct, uh, right, yeah. you know, in, in, in the real world, uh, I don't, you know, anything you buy, uh, you, you go to a store and, and the store has uh, certain costs that they've got to cover to deliver that product to. And in, in uh, retail cabinetry, you know, we'd, we'd sell it for, you know, whatever, 50 cents on the dollar to the dealer, and they'd sell it at, you know, uh, 75 to 85 cents on the dollar, 100 cents on the dollar if it was, uh, if it was in one of the more expensive uh, uh, rent districts. Uh, but uh, uh, in, in our case, when we sold direct, uh, we could be more cost competitive than if we had dealers. And as long as we could do it in an efficient way, it allowed us to have more on the bottom line. And we went from uh, we went from uh, being a, a, a company that had massive turnover 
uh, to a company that has turnover in the single digits, and we're one of the highest paying companies in our area. Our, our retention is uh, huge. Uh, we, we uh, um, you know, it, it, it's, it didn't happen without selling direct because we had to be able to get a manufacturing markup, which there really isn't one, uh, and get a retail markup. So between the two of those, if we could do those efficiently, then it gave me a chance to make more as a company so I could share more with my employees. And um, uh, that that was critical to us. We we uh, you know we just had to find a better way to do it because we we just you know it, it, we could have done the other things, but we wouldn't have been as successful uh, if we were selling uh, through the dealer network. Uh, here we completely control all, all aspects of the costs. So yeah, and that's definitely something architects can learn from as well. There there are many design build architecture firms that design it and then build it. Um, and the reason they're doing that is to be able to have that quality control and that that uh, that uh, customer service, the ability to have very top customer service all the way through to the very end. Right. Uh, because so so often uh, architects lose that relationship during construction when it's not even in your own control. That something happens during construction and then the client gets upset about the whole process and you get thrown in with that. Right. Um, right. And. and, and, and that, ahead, that's man. that's a hard place to be, uh, and and uh, we we get to avoid more of that when we handle as much of the process as we do. I mean, we we a lot of custom cabinet makers they'll buy drawers, they'll buy doors. Yep. Uh, we do everything, uh, with rare exception, in this building, uh, because I don't have I don't want to call you and say, yeah, Mark, I'm sorry about this, but the door company screwed up on the doors, so kitchen's going to show up and half the doors are going to be missing. Uh, you know, we, we just, if we can take care of it, we, we do it ourselves. And we found that as long as we're good at it, uh, and it comes from having the best crew in, on the planet, uh, which I'm blessed to have, uh, then, then our problems are really minimized. Um, so. Brian, thank you very much for being with me here today. I, I it's been very eye opening. I've learned a lot. Uh, I love hearing sort of the uh, the, the behind the scenes at Crown Point. Uh, so thank you for so opening up the back door and letting us uh, see in a little bit and on what you're doing. Hey, my pleasure. I appreciate you listening to the story. You're you're up in Claremont, New Hampshire, right? I, I'm in I'm in Claremont, New Hampshire, and, and I'll tell you what we're doing. We're just uh, at the risk of sounding like a commercial. We are we are going to start a uh, an architects program where they can come up and get continuing education units. Uh, we'll be doing presentations on period design, working with cabinet makers, that kind of stuff. That's that's more generic. It's not crown point specific, and uh, uh, they get a chance to tour the facility. And it's uh, uh, we'll bring in guest speakers that will also uh, provide more continuing education units. And we're going to launch that uh, in uh, early uh, early 20, uh, 2016. Uh, and, and we're very excited about that. So if anybody's looking for a, it's a tremendous, uh, tremendous operation up here. If you came through it, you'd be really impressed once again, because of the crew I have. Yeah. So. And I was going to I was going to mention that, that you're also uh, available for tours that if anybody wants to stop by the Crown Point factory in Claremont, um, you always welcome us in and, and give us a tour to uh, see how it's done. 
Yeah, we, we've actually had, we've had architects, we've had homeowners uh, that are working with architects that we say, you know, if, if you're going to make the trip, because for some of them, they're like, ah, you know, four hours up, four hours back, tour the, that's a long day. We say, come up, we'll put you at the, we'll put you up at the common man in on our dime so that you don't have to drive back and forth in one day. We're happy to do it. It's a great little end and, and uh, relaxing, you know, bring your wife, bring your husband, have it a romantic getaway, tour the facility and, and then head back and, and I'll tell you, we do it almost every day here, and people love it. Well, that so. sounds like a good deal. I may take you up on that. I, w- I would love to have you on <laughs> I'll just have to wait for the, the leaves to turn because it doesn't get much better than New Hampshire in the fall. Well, and honestly, they're a little late this year. I'm looking out the window, and, and trees that are normally started to full bloom in color are still pretty green. So yeah. probably uh, I would say two weeks from now would be just about perfect. Okay. You're, you're, uh, you're found on the, on the Internet at crown-point.com. That's correct. Crown dash point hyphen crown dash point dot com. And you are on Facebook at facebook dot com slash crown point cabinetry. You're also on house and you're on Twitter and you guys are everywhere. So uh, if anybody wants to contact you, that's that's uh, a good place to start. Is there any place if they wanted to contact you directly? Is there a way to to contact you directly? Uh, Yeah, Uh, my my uh, desk line here uh, is six zero three five four two. 3388 and uh, or you could just get online and and uh, on the general info say hey I, I got a question for Brian and I tell people don't don't ask for Mr. Stoll there's there's uh, <laughs> uh, there are three Mr. Stoll's here my brother my son and myself and uh, the, there's only one real Mr. Stoll and that's dad so ask for Brian yeah. so um, happy to talk to him well, Brian thank you very much for sharing your knowledge here today at the Entree Architect podcast my, my pleasure thanks for uh, taking the time If you like this episode and you want to leave a review, you could just go to iTunes at entrearchitect.com slash iTunes. You can subscribe there. You can leave a, a star review or you can just leave a couple of nice messages or not so nice messages. If you don't like what I'm doing, let me know. You can do that as well. I just, I just want some feedback. So go to entrearchitect.com slash iTunes and, and let me know what you think. But even more important than that, if you don't want to do that, just take this episode entrearchitect.com slash episode 93 and email it to a friend. That, I would be indebted to you forever. Just do that. Just share it with a friend. Share it on social media. Share it uh, through email. Because I'm working for you and I can't get this going and I can't, can't get more people listening and we can't be an influential force if the world doesn't know we exist. So share away entrearchitect.com slash episode 93. And I want to encourage you to share what you know. Go invite four or five of your architect friends out for coffee or lunch and do that every month. Organize a mastermind group. If you don't know what a mastermind group is, search it on on Google. Search it on YouTube and learn what a mastermind is and, and go organize one. And you then go share everything you know. Share everything you know talk about everything everybody talks to me about fees and how they don't know how much everybody else is talking go organize a group and share what you know and then you'll know complete show notes and a direct link to download this episode may be found at entrearchitect.com slash episode 93 we're coming up on 107 more episodes to 100 i have no idea what i'm going to do to celebrate 100 but that's going to be a big big day so I hope you've been here since number one, actually number zero, 
there's an intro episode. So actually, I've done 94 of these babies. And I love every single one of them. And I will continue doing them as long as I can. So my name is Mark Arlapage. And I am an entrepreneur architect. Go share what you know. Go share what you know. And I'll see you next week. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that, (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more.
Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.